We actually have a, um, a photographer on our team does all the drone footage. Amazing stuff. Yeah, he did. He did all of his shots. What's that? Yeah. He, uh, where he, is that? This is in this is in Baudette, Minnesota, and Baudette. Uh, yeah, the um, it's it's near the most northern city in the United States, International Falls. And when you land there, this was we were doing some winter testing there a little more than a year ago. Uh, when you land there, there's a big sign that says "Welcome to the Icebox of America," <laughs> and uh, we were testing the vehicle actually at minus 37 degrees Fahrenheit without the wind chill. <laughs> so it was a great way to determine how to best precondition the battery and what the charging times and the state of charge, how that was impacted by the cold temperature. So this is a the Goodyear Proving Ground in I think this is in Oklahoma, and um, what I really love about this video is the driver didn't hit any cones. <laughs> he goes through the whole, whole track course, which is about three minutes long, no cones. And this was um, a test trip in uh, Death Valley, um, hot weather testing. Arizona, Nevada. So the vehicle's very capable on all, all road surfaces from the snow to the, to the smooth road to off-road surfaces to dirt. It's a really fun truck to drive. We've heard that uh, batteries are not friends with extreme temperatures. Who is? You know, who wants 125 degrees? But do batteries do better in hot weather or in cold weather? Which one is? I would say warm to warm to uh, warmer and higher than colder. And better is a definition, right? Better is, do you, is it how long it keeps its charge or how long, you know? Um, What's the range? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah the, range, the range tends to go down in colder temperatures, but that's you know, because electrons move slower in, in low temperature. But you stand in minus 37 with your cell phone, it's, gonna, it's going to uh, lose, its, lose its charge much sooner. Lose its charge. Okay, yeah. we're getting the thumbs up over here. All right, yeah, we're just doing the, the uh, what do they do that on the, <laughs> we're like the warm-up, right? Uh, warm-up, right. <laughs> Well, let's get started, uh, first of all, with a couple of questions. First of all, welcome everybody this afternoon to talk about electric vehicles. Could I see a show of hands? Earlier I asked about where people are from. This time I'm gonna ask, how many of us here drive electric vehicles? Mm -hmm. uh, not bad, about 10. Mm -hmm. um, how many of the people who don't drive an electric vehicle, what's the number one thing holding you back? What is it? A thousand miles. Okay. Uh huh. A thousand miles is your bar is your benchmark. Okay. That I think the highest rated vehicle, maybe the Lucid today, makes five hundred. Yeah, yeah, about five hundred. Yeah. Uh, one one big reason for me uh, here. Yes. Yeah. One big reason for me uh, not to, you know, drive an electric vehicle because I, I love to drive, you know, really long drive, I've eighteen hours, twenty hours, you know. But I don't see that much of, you know, charging infrastructure set up except Tesla and the Electric Americas doing catching up fast. Mm -hmm. uh, so that range anxiety is still there. 
So unless we get rid of that, it's really, uh, as per my uh, you know thought, it's really not a replacement of the whole petrol uh, or gas-driven vehicle. Yeah. So char charging infrastructure would be number one for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. What else? Yes. The cost of the vehicles, like the 20 or 30 percent higher, at least to the compared to the equivalent uh, conventional vehicles, and also I live in apartments, so it's not ideal case of EVs. Okay. Okay. Unless the apartment had a charging, it had a you know level two charger that you could plug in there, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Right. For me, it's a safety concern. I actually had a Tesla Model Y for about 9,000 miles until it glitched while I was driving it and the brakes didn't work. Uh, luckily, at low speeds. Whoa. Uh, pretty wild. Uh, so I need to learn more about actually how EVs are different from actual cars in terms <laughs> of what's actually driving it. Is it essentially a computer on wheels and how can that be uh, fixed in the future? There's a lot of valid reasons you guys are bringing up, like one range, two battery infrastructure, three price, four glitches. Who likes glitches when you're driving a vehicle at 60 miles an hour down the road? Well, the good news is uh, Mr. Edward Hightower here, CEO of Lordstown Motors based in Ohio, um, has a message today that essentially paints a picture of a future where we're going to see much higher quality electric vehicles at lower cost with better batteries and more and more increasingly customized for the specific needs that you have. Um, this initial product we we're looking at, Edward, is actually a kind of a proof of concept that Lordstown could actually build an electric vehicle. Can you tell us a little bit about that product before, I know that's looking in the rearview mirror, but just as a starting point, what kind of truck is it? How big is it? What kind of range does it get? And then, then we're going to talk about the future. Yes, yes, ab absolutely. And, and thank you, Michael. Michael Dunn, everyone. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. Um, we, we stand in the, we're standing between you and probably some happy hours somewhere, right? So we appreciate your interest in electric vehicles. This vehicle here uh, that we're showing on the video is the Lordstown Endurance. It went into production in the third quarter of 2022, just last year, and we started selling them right after Thanksgiving. Uh, it is a full, uh, is a battery electric, full-size pickup truck, about the size of you know an F-150 or a uh, GM Silverado, and uh, we're really excited to have it on the marketplace as one of the few fully electric vehicles in the second most popular segment, market segment in the United States, which is full-size pickup trucks. And since we're in Texas, I probably didn't need to say that because it's probably number one here in Texas. Um, we're really excited about the vehicle. One of the things that's unique about it is our motors are in the hubs, in the wheels itself. So it's got four in-wheel hub motors. So every truck is all-wheel drive. And the in-wheel hub motors give us a unique opportunity to control torque directly at each wheel. So when you saw the vehicle on the ice in Baudette, 
or on the off-road surfaces in Death Valley, um, each motor was uh, enabling the capability uh, of the truck. So really excited about it. And uh, look forward to talking to you today about our, our, what we're planning to do in the future with our products. Um, one last thing, the truck is focused on the commercial fleet market. So our products are tailored towards businesses that use their electric vehicles for work. And we have a strategy on how we can make more EVs for companies that use them for work and make them accessible to those businesses that use them for work. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about that today. Edward, the, in our title for today's talk, conversation, I noticed accelerated innovation. That's really what we want to focus on for the remainder of our conversation. Uh, just some, some context. You know, up until now, the auto industry has consisted of handfuls of automakers, the Detroit Three, the Germans have a handful, the Japanese have a handful. Those are the big assemblers, and then they outsource a lot of parts to what they call first-tier suppliers, people who make the wheels, the uh, dr drum brakes, the pistons, those are seats. Out seats. Yeah, yeah. They'd be outsourced to other companies. But with the dawn of the electric vehicle age, the entire process for designing, engineering, and manufacturing vehicles is being turned on its head. There's complete different thinking around the most efficient way to build a vehicle. And that's really what we want to get into today. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So one of, the, one of the ways that, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I was always passionate about the automotive industry, and I spent about 30 years in the auto industry before Lordstown between Ford, BMW, and GM, primarily in product development, engineering, strategic planning, and leadership roles between those three companies. And the main battle, the main challenge in the industry is how do you get scale? How do you get scale? How do you reuse as many components and subsystems as possible so that the cost is lower to make the vehicles more accessible to the customer? And I think our, biz our business model uh, is allowing us to you know, crack that code, if you will, and that's what we're uh, gonna talk about today. You have a, I think you have a video to get us yes. started, right? Yeah, we have a video to get us started. So we can run the clip, as they say. <laughs> and the Oscar goes too. <laughs> Everyone, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Businesses need EVs to meet specific needs, needs that require innovative solutions. At Lordstown Motors, we believe creating a solution demands an innovative approach to EV design. Design that's capable of delivering much more than what an EV will look like, that's because innovative design informs how EVs work and perform, enabling them to solve business needs for greater capability, increased uptime, and lower total cost of ownership. Achieving those goals and more led to the development of the Innovate EV ecosystem. Lordstown Motors, together with Foxconn and the MIH Mobility and Harmony Consortium, are providing a modern, agile approach to creating EVs. One that applies nimble, 
high-tech design, engineering, and manufacturing principles to automaking. At Lordstown Motors, creating a finalist for the North American Truck of the Year was just the beginning. We realized we needed to change the game. That's exactly what the Innovate EV ecosystem does by providing the design, engineering, and development expertise of Lordstown Motors, the manufacturing and supply chain expertise of Foxconn, and the more than 2,500 member companies in the MIH consortium. In the Innovate EV ecosystem, all the experts and suppliers are in place. Lordstown Motors, collaborating directly with commercial customers, is uniquely positioned to design, engineer, and develop EVs efficiently and effectively. This new approach is driven by a simple insight. A business doesn't just need an EV. A business has a need that must be met with the right EV. Which is why we tailor vehicles to the specific business needs at the right cost all while bypassing long production cycles. Lordstown Motors, in coordination with Foxconn's global manufacturing expertise and robust supply chain, leverages a common core of hardware components. Sharing a common vehicle architecture across manufacturers means product development cycles and expenses can be reduced. It also means we can more quickly create greater value for our customers through design, as well as through hardware and software optimization. It's how we're helping businesses go from a dream to a completed, homologated, workforce-ready EV launched fast. Lordstown Motors makes it possible to enter through multiple pathways to accelerate the world's demand to transition to a broader spectrum of electric vehicles faster. That's the power of leveraging Lordstown Motors as the on-ramp to the Innovate EV ecosystem. Okay, Edward, I got a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> we saw Lordstown Motors, and then we saw another company called Foxconn. Yes. And then a third called MIH Cons Cons uh, Consortium. Yes. Can you set the table for us and explain what's the relationship between those three companies? Yes. So Foxconn, many of you, if you haven't heard of them, you probably have heard of them because they're one of the largest or the largest consumer electronics contract manufacturer. If you have an iPhone, they built it. If you have a MacBook or iPad, they built it. Xboxes, PlayStation, uh, was it PS5? Jake, you know, that the, <laughs> get asked the young folks with, what the most popular one is. Um, they have been very successful in consumer electronics contract manufacturing but they have a strategy to grow their business by entering some new segments. And one of those is electric vehicles. They, um, we sold our assembly plant in Lordstown, Ohio. That's where our name comes from, our assembly plant. It's kind of midway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, right off of Interstate 80. And um, they have a desire to get into the supply chain by building and manufacturing several of the high value components that go into EVs. They've established the MIH consortium that Michael just mentioned, Mobility and Harmony Consortium, which is a group of about 2,500 global automotive suppliers, tech companies, and local automotive manu parts manufacturers to encourage that thing I talked about earlier, commonality and scale, to encourage automakers to use similar components or a shared component set in order to help enable that scale. So Lordstown, we will do the product design, engineering, development, testing, homologation, and certification. 
will leverage the shared components that are built by Foxconn. They'll built in the shared assembly plant, which we sold to Foxconn. So those two uh, and the shared components from the consortium, the MIH Mobility and Harmony Consortium that they created. So that'll be the path to lower cost. That'll be the path to greater scale. And as we target our work customers, our, our commercial fleet customers, we'll be able to create those vehicles that are more tailored to their needs but benefit from the shared components through that uh, ecosystem. So this is, in some ways, at least for the auto industry, brand new. Yes, but, absolutely. But if you mention the iPhone, how many of us own an iPhone here? Yeah. When you get the box, it says, designed in California, right? Cupertino, specifically, Cupertino. right? Cupertino. Yeah. <laughs> and assembled in somewhere over China or Taiwan. Yeah. yeah. So is this, to what extent is this a similar structure? It is, it is similar. It is similar. However, Vehicles are far more complex than mobile phones. You know, when I start. Don't tell people at Apple that, okay? Yeah, they are. <laughs> they really are. I mean, I've been in the, having been in the industry um, um, my entire career, you know, when, when I started in the industry, vehicles had maybe three or four computers in them. Now they have three or four dozen computers, especially with electric vehicles. You know, you have inverters that, uh, you have the inverters, you have the battery management system, you have a thermal system, you have everything that's on your screen, your infotainment, cybersecurity systems, your chassis computer, body computer. All of those computers um, make it a, a much more complex um, piece of equipment, if you will. <laughs> and, and you, at Lordstown, you're doing the design engineering including software, or is software the domain of the MIH consortium? So we, we our team, so our team, our R&D team, our research and development team is primarily in Detroit. Uh, we have a smaller part of our team that is at the plant in Ohio, uh, but our infotainment, meaning everything that's basically on the screen, information and entertainment, infotainment, that team and our software team there in Irvine, California, and uh, the plan with our future vehicles is that we'll share more modules with the Foxconn EV ecosystem, including the MIH consortium. So, you know, it is, a, it is not a small undertaking to complete a vehicle, elect, vehicle electrical architecture, as well as the software that goes into all of those modules. It's not just the cost of the module, but it's all of the engineering time and talent and resources that goes into all of those systems working together, all of the bugs being fixed and resolved. If you can start from that point and then reuse that again and again and again, yeah, you make changes and improve them, but if the fundamentals are still there and they could be shared with multiple OEMs, that's the path to scale and getting to market faster, and that's what we're doing. Someone earlier mentioned cars as computers on wheels, and this, is, this sounds like what's happening. So 10 years ago, you were manufacturing vehicles that were powered by internal combustion engines with transmissions and all that stuff that we've used for 100 years. Today, it sounds like you're actually, we're at a point where we're actually building mm -hmm. computers with software that are, mm -hmm. that's at the heart of what's happening with a car. Yeah, it is. It's very much at the heart. It, it touches every major vehicle subsystem, whether it's the propulsion system, the chassis, the body, 
the interior, the safety systems, what fires the airbags, if you will, um, you know, the stability control when your anti-lock brakes or your stability control comes in. In the case of our hub motors, uh, the fact that we're able to control the torque at every wheel, that's a computer that helps us do that. So I cringe a little bit at the computer on wheels term, if I'm honest, Michael, because it to some extent diminishes the on wheels part and the complexity. Uh -huh. And as an automotive you know, professional and enthusiast, I was an enthusiast before I was a pro an engineer and an enthusiast before I was a professional, the on wheels part is as important or <laughs> as important and um, you know these and the brakes. Yeah, the brakes. I mean, these vehicles carry people. And uh -huh. yeah, exactly. Your your experience. These vehicles carry people. They're um, heavily regulated. You're very much concerned about safety and redundancies, uh, so you don't have those issues. So um, yeah, it's it's complex, but that's what makes it exciting, and uh, that's what attracts uh, so many people to be passionate about it and passionate about their vehicles. You don't put posters on the wall about your fridge, even though those are getting smarter. <laughs> your current vehicle is designed exclusively or customized for commercial vehicle work purposes, truck yes. buyers, yep. doing work called a work truck. Um, what is the number one benefit or differentiation from this new model where you're in working in conjunction with Foxconn and with MIH? Who what's the big benefit of going in this direction? Well, our mission as a company, as Lordstown Motors, is to accelerate the transition towards electric vehicles. And we are doing that by focusing on vehicles that are used for work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all raised our hands about how many have an electric vehicle. I bet everyone here, well, not everyone here, but a higher percentage of people have a vehicle, <laughs> whether it's electric or not. Mm -hmm. but. Our personal cars, they tend to sit in a parking space 90 to 95% of the time. How many of you, how many of you who have a car, your car is not in a parking space right now? All right, pretty much everyone's car is in a parking space right now. By focusing on vehicles that are used to work, used for work, uh, those vehicles tend to be active and out on, out on the road a greater percentage of their life, greater percentage of their time, and uh, if we want to have a greater impact on transitioning ICE miles, internal combustion and engine miles, um, to electrified miles. That's why we focused on that segment. How we'll enable that even further is making those products more desirable and accessible. Mm -hmm. Two things, desirability and accessibility. So one of the things we focus on at Lordstown is design and innovation focused towards businesses that use their vehicles for work. What are the, what is the use cases that an EV uh, can better suit them? What are some things we could do in terms of storage capacity, capability, um, added features that are, you know, specific for their use case, whether you're a pharmaceutical rep or whether you're a grocery store or whether you are a plumber or a, um, Cable, what's, what's, what's Jim Carrey movie? Was that Cable Guy? Cable yeah, guy. yeah, exactly. Um, a uh, um, uh, telecom uh, telecom operator. All of those things that that um, tend to be businesses that return home at night, or we call them return to base operations. Those are ripe to that's your sweet spot to EV. Exactly. Okay. 
you're able to customize. We're able to, yes, exactly. We're able to tailor the vehicle, if you will. You know, uh, so we're not getting in the way of the upfitters, mm -hmm. but we're tailoring the fundamental design uh, of the vehicles to those, to those customers, to those use cases, but at the same time, allow them to benefit from all of the shared components, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the things that you don't necessarily see. Uh, I mean, I, I really like the graphic that showed the pickup truck, the SUV, and the van, but if you notice, the basic rolling chassis, if you will, um, that was the same. same. That stayed, stayed the same. same. That's where you get the commonality. That makes up really more than 60% of the, of the variable cost of the vehicle. So if you could get that common mm -hmm. and build more of them, same or similar, you're able to drive that scale. And uh, that's part of our strategy, working with Foxconn and MIH to, to be able to do that. We're talking about the future, and um, I'm reminded in Silicon Valley, there's a saying that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So when you're in California and San Diego where I live, there's Teslas everywhere. Then I go back to Michigan where I grew up and there's Tesla nowhere. nowhere. <laughs> so um, question for you, Edward. How do you see the next five years in terms of EV adoption in the United States? Is it, are we at takeoff stage or will there be surges and then consolidation given the differences across the United States in people's attitudes and experience with electric vehicles? Yeah, you know, the data suggests that people who drive an EV and own an EV, they like them. They, there's high satisfaction, if you look at the data, from EV owners. Most of them say they want another one. Um, I have, um, I've been driving an EV for a while. I have a charger in my garage. I know when I'm driving from Detroit to Ohio where the charging points are. I have zero range anxiety, zero. And because, you know, I've, I've adapted my driving habits to that. I think it was someone on, um, it might have been even on your show, Michael, um, who said uh, there was a time where we were used to our, for the young people, phones used to flip. There was a thing called a flip phone. <laughs> you won't remember that, but the, the Motorola Smart uh, Star Tax or Smart Tax or whatever, you'd plug them in and it would last for four days. But then when we switched to iPhones, I think in 2007 was, was when it first was launched, and I think that's when I got my first one. Well, we suddenly had to charge it every day. But there were so many benefits and functionalities to that, we never go back to the flip mm -hmm. phone. So I think consumers adapt to change if there's a benefit to the consumer. So I think there's consumer education that's gonna happen over the years. I think charging infrastructure is going to develop and evolve, especially with incentives like the Inflation Reduction Act that's incentivizing more charging stations. And in the case of our customers, our commercial fleet customers, many of them are what we call return to base operations. Mm -hmm. They come home every night. And uh, many of those customers, which are primarily, you know, businesses that use their vehicles for work, they install level two chargers in, um, uh, at their, in their garages and charge there. So I think, we're at the, I think we're at the growth, in the growth You're phase. You're optimistic. Optimistic, absolutely. Okay. It helps that the government is throwing billions of dollars at it, right, in terms of incentives. Yes, that helps, but if the customer experience or if the customer sentiment was negative, mm -hmm. And it's positive. Mm -hmm. If the customer sentiment was, was negative, 
even with the money, I would probably be a bit skeptical. But I'm most, you know, you, you can't do, you, you don't want to run a business going to war with your customers, which was another automotive uh, person said. Um, but I think, you know, that plus the incentives make, uh, make me optimistic. Right, we're around 300 miles on average of range for most vehicles now, which is a huge improvement mm -hmm. over just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Let's take a moment just to shift to you guys with us today. Uh, so far in our conversation, is there anything coming to your mind you'd like to ask questions about? Mm -hmm. Don't be shy. We're in Texas. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Thanks. So Really appreciate the presentation. I'm Everett Crossland I, uh, from Massachusetts, so we see a lot of EVs up there as well. Um, you've obviously made a choice to have a business model that's strategic partnership driven, where others are kind of taking a vertical integration approach. What was it about vertical integration that made you want to, uh, to go the direction of strategic partnerships as opposed to, to that other, other model? Cost. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, the auto industry is unique in that you have to make significant investments very early in the product development life cycle, long time before you know whether the dog's going to eat the dog food, if you will, whether you'll have a winning product in the marketplace. So the more you can, you know, I, I think collaboration is, is, is part of the future. The more you had, can partner in some of those key as aspects of the technology development and the vehicle development, the more you're sharing risk, and the more you're reusing, the more you're driving commonality by doing that. So um, that's why I believe our model is going to help make EVs more accessible and uh, uh, help us deliver on our mission. Good afternoon, uh, Andrew Stevens here. Uh, so first of all, thank you for this. This is uh, very exciting for me, uh, also in the automotive industry, and spent some time on the commercial fleet sales side. So this is, I've always seen this as kind of the next edge and where I think it should go. So how do you commercialize this offer? And you talk about the pickup trucks and, and just a few hours west of here, you think of the Permian Basin, and there's so many different companies out there that may have hundreds of pickup trucks. How do you, you know, customize that. Where does where does where do you guys stop, and where do those upfitters start, as you mentioned, and and putting together a package that's um, enticing for for those companies? Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. I think that's directed to me, um, Andrew. What we do is we get we stay very close to our customers, so. With the Endurance, we sell primarily to fleet and fleet management companies. Last week, we were at um, a, a trade show called NTEA Work Truck Week, where the major fleet buyers uh, uh, come to see the latest, latest products in the marketplace. Our main way that we will, to answer your question, our main way we'll do it is we have a, a customer product advisory board. So we work very closely with our customers to, 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 to some extent, co-create uh, the product with them, determining what their needs are, what segments we should best serve, and how to best serve them, what are their pain points. You know, design and innovation are part of the values of our company, so we're training everyone in design thinking so that we can be very customer-focused and develop um, true solutions to problems for them. I think you know the, the the companies that stay closest to these companies that 
use their products for work, and, and truly deliver on the total cost of ownership benefits that EVs promise to deliver. And these companies, these businesses actually calculate it. They actually look at that more than us as consumers do. The closer we stay to those customers, the, the better we'll do, and that's how we'll implement this, this strategy. Hey. hey, thanks. Um, Scott from Adelaide, Australia. Um, there's a lot of talk in Australia about vehicle-to-grid charging. Um, I just had a look on my phone, and yesterday we put about 55 kilowatts of energy between 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. out into the grid from my, my house. So, um, and this is becoming quite, quite big in, in South Australia. Um, the, mar the energy market has actually turned to a point where you actually get paid to consume power in the middle of the day, um, which has really changed that. But there's not a lot of manufacturers really focused on that um, ability to take power out of the vehicle battery and put it into the grid. Um, with time of use power being paid to receive it in the day and put it back in at night time, yeah. um, you know, it's working out that, it, that, it, uh, that it's a big thing. Is that something um, you're heading towards? Bearing in mind that, that house batteries are so expensive that to buy the same capacity yep. in house batteries Right. Um, it would almost cost you the same as what the vehicle would. Yeah. So you can charge your vehicle at work if it's parked there and then use it to power your home. So I just wondered if you got any of that on your horizon at all. Yeah, no, Andrew, I think you make a, make a, a very good point because if you look at EVs, their battery capacity, for the most part, is somewhere between 50 kilowatt hours and 100 kilowatt hours. You know, every OEM is a little bit different, but they largely are within that range. And that enables, you know, with that, you can charge at night when the utility rates are lower. And uh, I, do, I really, I agree with you. I think um, a feature called bi-directional charging is, is the future where at, at peak, um, at, at times of the day where the load and stress on the grid is at its peak, all of these vehicles running around with 50 to 100 kilowatt hours of of, uh, uh, of, of in their batteries can send energy back to the grids. I think that's going to be an opportunity in how we manage uh, uh, areas where the grid is is strained even even uh, uh, more so than other areas. So I, I could see ev more EVs in the future having that having that feature. All right, you start to think of tes a million Teslas running on U.S. roads as miniature power plants, mm -hmm. just carrying energy around yeah. and being able to send it back to the grid. That's phenomenal. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Hi, um, I'm Vanessa from Detroit, Michigan. I work at Wayne State University. Right. Um, and I was just wondering, when we're talking about accelerating innovation, have you guys worked with universities in, in research, or is there any opportunity there? Yeah, I think that's an opportunity. Um, I, I think it's an opportunity. When we, when we say accelerate innovation, we're not only talking about the product, we're talking about our business model. You know, one of the reasons um, I feel we were selected as a semifinalist and then a finalist is for North American Truck of the Year with the endurance, the key criteria is, in, is innovation. And, um, Innovation is not just in the product, but it's in this ecosystem that we're a part of and helping to develop. It's our asset light business model that is allowing us to share the six and a half million square foot plant uh, and not have to carry that cost uh, on our books uh, ourselves. We are not very close to primary research. 
uh, um, which which I believe is closer to the university space that that you're 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 referring to. Um, but we continue to do project. We do projects with local universities uh, to help help us stay close to the customer, uh, understand what students are thinking about our markets, and um, they're great recruiting opportunities as well. But we're not very close to primary research. So, but we do collaborate with universities in other areas in Detroit as well. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Hello, I'm Nathan Davis. I'm a uh, PhD candidate and uh, assistant instructor at the University of Texas, also working in academia. Um, you say hook em horns, right? Is that what you say? Horns, yes, okay. that's right. Um, <laughs> I'm used to saying go blue, but you know. <laughs> um, and so I do human-computer interaction research, but I'm focusing uh, on pedestrians right now. Um, which, and, and when people ask me uh, how that makes sense, I tell them that a, com uh, a car, as you might assume, that is a computer on wheels. Um, so my question is kind of a little bit fringe. Um, so I, I do UX research uh, primarily, and I looked up Lordstown while you were talking and looked at the instrument panel. And I almost raised my hand before in talking about why I don't drive an autonomous vehicle yet. I've test driven a Tesla, and um, as somebody who is a HDI researcher, I'm kind of screen averse. I think we have too many screens. Um, and so I, I still want a car that doesn't overwhelm me. And I, I looked up Lordstown and noticed a small instrument panel. And then I did a quick, I looked at, really quickly looked at Polestar and some of these other ones too, and found that there is quite a big, uh, you know, um, range of, of big screens. And I was wondering if that was intentional for y'all and if, and if that has anything to do with being a fleet vehicle and not a personal vehicle, or was that just, you know, it looks like the, the design, the screen space is relatively minimal. And, and, the, and what I saw online and what I saw on the video. Well, if you like it, it was intentional. Okay. <laughs> so, no, no. <laughs> no, it, it was intentional because, you know, in many, many OEMs, many original equipment manufacturers of vehicles, fleet is an afterthought. And we knew we would be focused on fleet. So we knew we had to have the right level of information on the screens. But I think if you remember from the photo, um, the knobs for like the HVAC system are large knobs. They're still physical knobs. Our shifter for the, it's not really gears because they're motors and not, not a transmission. Um, it's, it's a very large in the center so that it's capable of both the temperature and the climate control and the buttons are large so you can still operate them in work gloves. So, we, we thought about those things, and as I, and that was a, where I was going earlier is with the larger OEMs, fleet is often an afterthought. Those are the lower end, low price vehicles that they'd rather not even sell because they make more money on you know, the higher end trim packages, the Platinums, the XLTs, the King Ranches, since we're in Texas. And, um, um, but we offer the customer everything they need, but not, not too much. And we did think about the worker with some of those knobs and buttons, to your point. Edward, something you mentioned earlier I think is worth revisiting, and that is that total cost of ownership. Mm -hmm. um, as a, an electric car owner now for six, seven years, I can't believe how little maintenance is required. It's almost criminal 
when I compare it to my wife's SUV in the driveway where she's changing oil every whatever. Uh, it's unbelievable. In six, seven years of driving a Tesla, tires have changed, brake pads have changed. That's it. So that's personal use. Imagine a commercial vehicle. Right, right. How much savings do you have a, do you have a, a measure of that? Is, what's your sense of how much savings comes from driving an e-transit Ford versus a gasoline-powered Ford, mm -hmm. for example? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on the big different items. Uh, brake pads last longer because of regenerative braking. Oil changes, you don't have to do them. They don't exist. Uh, air filters don't exist except the cabin air filter that is inside the vehicle. The exact numbers, they vary. Um, what we find is that each of our each of our customers do their own calculations based on what they know their daily use patterns will be, how many vehicles they have in their fleet, what the price of gasoline or diesel is in their area versus what the price of electricity is in their area. So it, it varies, but in every case, uh, the total ownership cost is, is, uh, is lower. So, <laughs> and they, um, they actually look at that. I mean, um, they even take into account charging time, uh, and they uh, because you know these vehicles, when they're not on the road, they're not making making uh, they're not re making a return for the investment in them. Other questions? Second row there, I think. Yes. want to sell to and, and you concentrate on those, but do you have in your long term, your 10-year, 15-year business plan to go and start selling to uh, the man in the street, the consumers, and would it be able to be set up so that a customer could order online, say, I want this, 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 and this, mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, and then you'd ship it as such? Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have a, a plan to do just that, but I, I, how I envision it is our product development team that's creating the architecture and doing the vehicle development, specifically for the commercial fleet market, we can also do that for other OEMs as well, for other automakers as well. So say you're an, another automaker who isn't in the United States, who may not have a product development team in the United States, it is not easy to fully homologate and certify a vehicle in the United States. And if you're not familiar with that word, that basically means pass all the regulations. And it's not just fuel economy or emissions, it's how much the windshield is cleared with your wipers. You know, how, how, how loud the, the uh, backup sound is when you're backing up. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, electric vehicle audio system, you know, how, how loud you hear those things. There's so there, there, there are a number of specific regulations that that's why you don't see every vehicle, you know, if you travel a lot around the world, um, you'll see vehicles that in, in, in other countries that you don't, may not see here, uh, because one, this is a hyper-competitive market, and you have to have a reason to, to succeed for your for a reason reason to be in the marketplace for your vehicle to succeed. But it's it's the regulation as well. So we um, I, 
I could see us doing vehicles for other OEMs. This is a short answer to your, to your question. And those OEMs, those automakers, could be focused on the consumer side of the business where we're focused on the commercial and fleet side of the business with the Lordstown brand and, uh, and, and our models. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is an extension of that. It can be an extension of that model. And that's why we think we're, um, that's why we think our partnership works so well. Because while they have the, as the video uh, said, the expertise in manufacturing, assembly, and supply chain, uh, they don't have deep roots in product development from concept through launch. And we have a team that have uh, collectively worked for multiple global OEMs, multiple vehicle pro development programs from concept through launch, and um, you know that that's what we're prepared we're prepared to do that do that very exciting work. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Hi, I work for my local government, and I'm in the process of switching our municipal fleet to EVs. But there are some departments. Yes, round of yes. applause. Thanks. <laughs> I'm in New Jersey, by the way. But there are some departments I have a that business are business card for you. Great. <laughs> They're fighting me tooth and nail, like Public Works and uh, the Director of Utilities. And everything you've said, I've already, you know, my team's already said to them to try to get them to switch. Do you have any other? Uh, recommendations or advice for me to help push it along because there's you know a lot of them are like well wait till the technology gets better or you know we don't have the infrastructure yet so it's a little frustrating yep Michael you may have a thought on that um. <laughs> one of the things in the car business generally is they call it getting but forget butts and seats so you say hey let's prototype let's just we don't have to eat the whole pizza Let's just get a couple slices, a few vehicles into your fleet, and let your drivers, your users, give you feedback. Maybe I, you're yeah, some departments are great, like uh, building and code, but again, it's like the old school, like uh -huh. public works are just, like they don't want to give up their F-150s. They don't want to go there. <laughs> well, in fairness, you know, there's a lot of complexity. The charging infrastructure isn't there. You know, it's, it's not. So it's almost as if... You, you, one has to identify the um, the change agents, the people who are ready to go first, and then have them encourage others. Because it it is true, it's it's hard. As I said, I lived in San Diego. I live in San Diego, California. Everyone's driving a Tesla. I go back to Michigan, meet up with my high school buddies, and they're like, "Electrics? What's wrong with you? You know, no, that's not going to happen." And it's really deeply entrenched in their minds. So, and they go explain, well, who wants to fool around with electric? It's 11 o'clock at night, uh, my battery's down in charge, I drive over to the local charging station, it's not working, it's cold outside, I put my credit card in, it's not reading the credit, there's a lot of horror stories like that um, with, that are real. So I realize I'm avoiding answering your question because I don't have any magic pill to persuade those people except experience and point to what other has happened in other cities and you know, evidence, and they go, okay, okay, we'll try some grudgingly, but um, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but when you, you mentioned your wife's SUV, uh -huh. I, I, I can imagine you probably had one or two conversations about her switching to electric, but 
<laughs> I, I, I have, and, and yeah, and it's interesting because from her from her point of view, mm -hmm. she likes the sexiness of an of electric SUV. car, but yeah. at the same yeah. time, she feels I'm not sure I, I want to take on an, the risks that are out mm -hmm. there. Yeah, yeah. So, right. What I would what I would add to your question is there's certain use cases where the 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 rationale is very very easy. If you're going a defined route, and that defined route is well within the range of the uh, EV, and it's coming back, those are pretty simple cases. Uh, if it's a municipality and their primary role is plowing snow on city streets, that use cases, well, we're in Texas, so completely irrelevant <laughs> example. Except in February 2020, right? Uh, 2021, when you had the... Um, <clears throat> It, it, in certain use cases, the, it, it's, um, it makes sense right away. And I imagine the world will, the industry will have a mix, and the mix will continue to get higher and higher electrified. Uh, but those cases where there's probably very low temperatures, they have to go very, very long distances. There may be other, there may towing. be other, yeah, towing. There may be other energy solutions that, that are more practical, uh, but there's so much we can do by moving more of the fleet to electrified. Think of, think of all of the vehicles that are in a, I'm just making one up, a McDonald's drive-through, sitting there idling, pumping, pumping uh, all of those emissions into the environment. Or think of any, elementary school, the long line of pickup and drop-off where those vehicles are just sitting there idling. Those are likely use cases. I mean, those are more on the personal side. Um, but um, think of all those use cases where it's not a uh, heavy towing, it's not plowing snow, it's not in cold weather, um, that you can transition and make the case. Um, I, and, and usually you finding advocates is a key part of doing it. I think of one of our other municipal customers who, who got some of the early endurances. They met the very same thing you did, um, other skeptics. But they have, have a vision. They see the benefits from a, from a cost standpoint. And uh, over time, you know, change is hard, right? And uh, you just need advocates to stick with it. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious about differentiation. I mean, there are a lot of truck, e-truck uh, companies out there, the Rivians of the world and so on, plus the traditional manufacturers are also in the business. How are you differentiating yourself between uh, all the competitors you are now facing out there? Well, in the full-size pickup market, there are only two. There are only two. Uh, there are a number of ones on the way and coming. Uh, but right now, there are only two. And uh, we differentiate ourselves by focusing on the commercial fleet space, those that use their vehicles for work, and making sure the vehicle has those attributes that they value and at a cost that's accessible to them and not a lot of the extra things that you know a luxury truck buyer may want, but you don't necessarily need that for, for a work truck. Uh, we're also proud, in the case of the Endurance, I keep pointing like that video still on, it's not on anymore. Uh, in the case of the Endurance, you know, there are, key three, there are three key things that we feel separate us and differentiate us. It's traction and mobility with our in-wheel hub motors. 
Safety, because it's a five-star, five-star crash-rated vehicle, so safety is important. Many you know, businesses told us that they care about their workers and their safety, so that was important to us. And value at our price point, and I, don't, I think you asked me other things. I don't know if I answered that point. The truck is about $65,000. The capability that you get in terms of payload and towing uh, for some of the other products on the, men, on the market, you'd have to spend more than that to get the package that would allow you to have the capability that you get in the endurance. So, and, and as total cost of ownership is important, the value of the initial purchase, we have to main, make sure we maintain that as well. Really appreciate the engagement. This, this crowd's very, really engaged. A lot of good questions. All right, I got a tough one for you, Edward. Are you ready? What's the hardest thing about building a startup like Lordstown? I think staying focused, keeping the team focused, keeping the team motivated, uh, and positive throughout the difficult times. Because this is a very, very tough industry, and it attracts a very different type of person. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, so it's really, it's really, you know, setting, being clear about your vision and what you're setting out to do and, uh, and sticking with it through tough times. Sticking with it, staying positive. I mean, look at, uh, obvious example was Tesla. For years, mm -hmm. for years, people just said, Elon Musk is an idiot. Elon yeah. Musk is going yeah. to fail. Elon Musk will never make it. How many millions of times did he hear that? Absolutely. And Absolutely. he powered through. Yeah. Now yeah. they're saying different yeah. things. But yeah, they're saying different things. Like, <laughs> how did he do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's that. It's, it's staying, staying focused, you know, just, and um, it's operating with the right disciplines as well. Um, and vehicles are very, very complex. And it's, it's all of this technology has to work together with the other technology. It has to package, it has to fit in the right space. It's gotta you know, meet all the regulatory requirements which we touched on, but it's gotta be simple enough to use so that the customer likes it. It's gotta make it, it's gotta do well in hot Texas summers as well as cold Detroit winters. Um, and it's gotta last the amount of time the customer is, is expecting. So, Though, if you're if you're someone who's into solving problems, the auto industry is just a great place to to build a career in because you know they're they're um, that's that's your that's your typical day, solving problems. One thing we haven't talked to uh, a lot is batteries. So batteries are the new engine of the vehicle. Where are your batteries from, or do you make your own? So our batteries, the cell, so they're in, when you think about an EV, there's the battery cell, the most basic component, and then there's the module that they're built up into, or a number of boxes that they're in, and then there's the pack, which is the full battery um, that powers the vehicle, yeah, if you will. Uh, our cells are from Samsung uh, in Korea, and if you look at, I think it's, seven of the top 20 battery manufacturers, the market, most of the market is in Asia right now. One of the things that the uh, inflation, uh, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act is doing is to encourage more local production of batteries. So our, our cells are from Samsung. 
However, we build the modules in Ohio uh, at the plant, and we also build the packs uh, at the plant as well. And the modules and packs are designed specific for our vehicle. So they incorporate uh, the optimized packaging within the frame rails underneath the body and the box of the Endurance. And um, they're, you know, they're designed to fit and carry. The, there are over 6,000 of those cells in an Endurance battery pack, which is a 109-kilowatt-hour uh, pack. What percentage of the vehicle does the battery account for in terms of cost or price? Like? Yeah, if, when you look at the cost of the battery, I'll, 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 I'll be a little broader than that because that's a, um, There's no end to it. Yeah, I mean, yeah the, where do you stop? Uh -huh. the, bat, the, the, the industry norm right now is batteries cost about 125 or so dollars per kilowatt hour. And um, <clears throat> that's, the cost has been actually coming down quite a bit over the last 10 years. And that's, what, that's one of the reasons why the EV industry has started to become more accessible. But if you look at the battery pack, the motors, the power electronics, including the inverters, you're looking at about 60% of the, of the material cost or the variable cost of a vehicle. So it's very important to make those, to size the battery appropriately, you know? You, so you don't want it over range. Like somebody said, I don't know if they're still here, but they wanted a battery with a thousand oh, mile oh, range. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you, did you say that? Okay, yeah, all right. That is fine, but you no, know, every problem comes with constraints and cost. You could do that, but it's heavier and it costs more. And, um, and I understand you want to go, was it Florida to Austin, right? Was it Tampa? Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, DC fast charging, which allows, so a typical level two charger in, that's in your garage will charge somewhere between seven and 12, um, seven and 12 kilowatts. Uh, you know, a DC fast charger uh, will charge pretty much 10 to 15 times faster than that. So you can do a fast charge, not exactly in the amount of time that you would fill up the tank, but you're looking at, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes uh, as opposed to hours. Lots of coffee. Coffee. Yeah, coffee. Vending machines. <laughs> yes, we have another question. Yes. With the acceleration of EV adoption, are the utility companies, their infrastructure, going to be able to keep up? Many of them, um, that, that's a challenge to, for them to, for the grid to keep up. And, uh, but men, most utility companies are actually incentivizing it. They, you get... Uh, our local utility company in Detroit, uh, you get an incentive if you install a EV charger in your home. And they help guide you on which times of days are the best times to, to purchase, to, to charge your vehicle from an energy standpoint. Um, also, more and more energy companies uh, have strategies of moving towards renewables and, and, and uh, creating less carbon as they generate energy. So the equation is only going to keep getting better 
um, over time. And as we talked about bi-directional charging, where, where the batteries in an EV can be part of the grid management solution, uh, that, that's going to be exciting to see that play out, play out as well. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, this is Carl. Uh, um, my question is regarding the uh, new government uh, infrastructure rebate. Does the endurance qualify for the full $7,500 rebate? So we, we yes, um, <laughs> short answer. It's very complex, but the short answer is yes. Um, as a vehicle that's focused on fleet, uh, we don't have the same restrictions as um, uh, some of the consumer-focused vehicles, but because one of the things the Inflation Reduction Act that you're asking about, it requires that the vehicle be built in the United States. Um, future regulations will require that the batteries also be built in the United States. That one has not rolled in yet, uh, so we're, um, um, yeah, we, it, we, we are eligible for it. Edward, I understand we have maybe a minute left. Is that right, Jay? Thirty seconds. Just a quick question. I, I know your 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 vehicle is not directed to the consumer. So, yes. But but and when I think about sixty five thousand mm -hmm. dollars, it's still a lot of money. And I know it's directed more. You're, you know, you're going to have corporations paying for it and so on, or a city or a government or some type. But I, I just I just think about it from a consumer perspective. That's a lot of money for a vehicle. And I know you're, you're right in line with the marketplace, I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of EV, right. uh, electrical right. vehicles, but, but I still find it to be an astounding amount of money for a vehicle. And I'm just wondering, do you think that um, over time, you know, is there going to be some possibilities to see that cost, you know, become more in line? You know, while you were talking, I was just looking at what the price of an F-150 was, a very baseline one, $33,000. You know the lowest line. That's not the electric one. No, no. I mean, but a current, a current, you know, F one hundred and fifty. Yeah. But, but I'm just thinking, you know, how can is there a scenario, you know, out there where the cost might become more affordable for you know the middle class, so to speak? Well, I think you've hit on the the core part of our innovate EV ecosystem and why we're doing what we're doing. It is to make the vehicles more accessible. The more we can generate scale in the industry, meaning you know, economies of scale, more common parts built at higher volumes, uh, and integrating the advancements and in technology into those vehicles, that's the enabler of the cost, uh, cost coming down. And um, you know, just you think about anything, any new technology when it first comes onto the market, it's more expensive than it is as it moves around. You know, um, let's think about what the first VCRs cost. You know, I mean, for the younger people, that's Netflix in a plastic box. <laughs> I mean, the first ones of those were like thousands of dollars, and now ten dollars a month streaming. So, um, yes, I, I do. I do believe they'll come down. It will come down over time. As I was mentioning to Michael's earlier question, the the cost of batteries. This, as, as cell chemistry improves, you'll be able to have more energy density. That means more energy in a smaller form factor, and that will help us put fewer batteries in the vehicle, which will help cost and reduce weight. 
The more you can reduce weight and costs, you know, range can get better. So, so the short answer is yes, over time. We're in the early innings of the transition towards electrification. So um, uh, over time, I do see that. Do you see plug-in hybrids as something that's hindering the adoption of pure EVs or something that's enabling people to bridge that gap? Do you want to comment on that? You know, this is such a personal thing, right? Because, um, I think of it, what's it called? Is it purgatory between heaven and hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's not wrong, plug-in hybrids, not wrong, practical in many ways, but it's sort of like, well, you're on your way to do electrics, so let's just do electrics and, and do them well. Yeah. So uh, from a, anybody who says they, they prefer to have a plug-in electric today for practical reasons, 100% agree. You, don't, you eliminate the range anxiety. But in terms of where the direction of the industry is going 10 years from now, I don't think we'll see many plug-in hybrids. We're going to go to lower cost, longer range battery electric vehicles. That's, that's the heaven on the horizon. Um, I know that uh, at the beginning, we're out of time already. And at the beginning, Edward and I said, well, the first thing we'll do is introduce ourselves, which we totally did not do. So um, Edward, I just want to maybe we'll close with Yes. A little bit about uh, you. and then, yeah. Yeah. Um, Edward Hightower, um, CEO and president of Lordstown Motors. I've uh, been with Lordstown a little more than a, a year and a half. I joined as president in 2021. The board elected me CEO about, uh, about eight months ago. And uh, we, uh, I spent about 30 years in the automotive industry between Ford, BMW, and GM, number of product development, engineering, P&L leadership roles. Uh, marketing roles between those three companies. Really passionate about the industry my, my whole life. I grew up in Chicago, south side of Chicago, and um, you know, studied engineering to get into the auto industry. I knew I'd end up in Michigan at some point, but really excited about this business and really happy that you all came out today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.